0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. There are many important decisions that shape our lives and by which we judge other people Coke or Pepsi, cats or dogs, New York or LA, iPod or Zoom. That last one is pretty easy for the vast majority of people. The competition between the two titans of technology to be the music player in your back pocket should have been a heated battle that raged for years. Instead, Microsoft Zune never achieved more than 10% of the market share, taking two years to sell as many units as Apple would sell in any given month. A few short years after its launch, The Zune was quietly shuffled off to the Format War graveyard. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. As long as we have had media on which to record our art, there have been competing formats. While more modern examples like Beta versus VHS or Blu-ray versus HD DVD may leap to mind, format wars go back as far as the days of Thomas Edison and the first audio media, wax cylinders. The first format war was between Thomas Edison and Emile Berliner, both of whom invented competing types of media for the phonograph. Edison first pioneered the wax cylinder in the 1880s. He originally intended it to be a means of recording telephone conversations, but the cylinders soon became a popular format for music. In the following decade, Berliner released the Disc Record, the shape we're familiar with today. Discs had originally been used solely in children's toys, and in the beginning their sound quality was quite poor. Frighteningly, terrifyingly poor, in fact. Go on YouTube and look up First Talking Dolls? Chucky had nothing on these girls. But after several technical modifications, disc records were able to rival Edson's wax cylinders in sound quality, sparking a format war that would last for nearly 20 years. Despite the cylinders' initial dominance, disc records won out in the end, and by the late 1920s, even Edison had started making his own disc records. The production process was the main decider. Disc records were much cheaper and easier to make, since they could simply be stamped out on a press. This helped them to be cheaper for the consumer, and once manufacturers began recording on both sides, people were able to get twice as much music for the same price. Not only that, but disc records were easier to ship, and consumers liked the fact that they could be arranged on a shelf like books. This victory didn't mean that there weren't drawbacks to the familiar frisbee-shaped format. The sound quality tended to be tinnier than a cylinder, and the disc records were more easily damaged after being played multiple times. You might think records remained unchanged until cassette tapes crept up behind them in 1963, but there were many types within that heading, each hoping to gain traction. There was the half-inch-thick Edison Diamond disc, which used hills and dales rather than grooves and would be destroyed by the needle of a standard record player. There was also such an animal as the 16 and two-thirds rpm record. They were half the speed of the 33 and a third rpm record that was the traditional standard, and only at the height of their availability could you get a record player with a speed setting that would allow you to play them. Because most 16s had a large spindle hole and were 7 inches in diameter, they were often mistaken for 45 RPMs. And there was no true standard size. They would be manufactured at 7, 9, 10, or even 12 inches in diameter. The 16 RPM records were too slow for proper high-fidelity sound, so they were used mostly for spoken words. Radio stations liked them for pre-recorded shows containing interviews or narrations, and they were frequently used for the first talking books for the blind. The 16s also found a niche in cars, of all places. Chrysler created Highway Hi-Fi, an audio format that enabled the 16 RPM record to be played in their cars in models from 1956 to 58. The system employed a sapphire stylus with a ceramic pickup on a turntable installed below the instrument panel. Combine these narrow niches with the short lifespan of highway hi-fi, and you get a picture of the lack of widespread commercial success for the 16s. When 8-track tapes hit the shelves in the latter part of the 1960s, it was seen as a revelation. No longer subject to what was playing on the radio, you could listen to your music in your car or while you were walking around. Developed by jet manufacturer William Lear, the eight-track cartridge contained a length of quarter-inch tape that wound around a single hub and ran in a continuous loop. The tape was divided along its length into eight channels or tracks, hence the name. The tape head played two tracks at a time to achieve stereo. A metal sensing strip connected the ends of the tape. When the tape reached the end of a program, the metal strip connected with a solenoid in the player, causing the trademark click or clunk sound of the playback head shifting across the tape to continue playing. If you had enough electricity and nothing broke, an 8-track could theoretically play forever. People reveled in their new freedom and speculated that 8-tracks would even replace the vinyl record. The format got a real boost from Ford, who, by 1967, had made 8-track players an option on all of their models. 8-tracks were the way of the future. Turns out, they barely made it a decade. Introduced in 1965, their popularity waned sharply after 1975, when the neon 80s dawned, the 8-track had already been relegated to trash bins and garbage sale two-for-a-quarter boxes. Whereas vinyl and other formats have always maintained a hardcore following, apart from a few outliers, there are very few people fighting to bring back the 8-track. Is the buying public really that fickle? Well, there were legitimate reasons that the passionate love affair with the new portable medium fizzled out so quickly. The primary reason the 8-track became extinct was that it was patently unreliable. They simply weren't built to last and subsequently earned a reputation as being ticking time bombs. Brand new 8-tracks often sounded good, and the tapes themselves were extremely hard-wearing, never melting in the heat. It was the internal components of the cartridge that failed over time, owing to cost-saving cheap construction. There is room to criticize the car stereo's construction as well, as they had a real tendency to eat the tapes, and always during the best part of your favorite song. Remember in the liner notes for a cassette tape seeing a message that one side of the tape may be longer than the other to preserve album continuity? No? Just me? Okay, well, on the 8-tracks, the layouts of the song on the original medium not lining up with the new medium meant that it was quite common for a song on the 8-track to fade out and fade back in as it transitioned to a new track. So right in the middle of the song, it would get quiet for a few seconds. Some 8-tracks avoided this by changing the order of the songs on the album, so the transition point would fall between songs. As cool as the idea of a tape playing endlessly may be, the design of 8-tracks meant that you couldn't rewind them. Did your friend talk over your favorite line? Guess you'll have to wait for that song to come around again. There was also a phenomenon called bleed-through. If the playback heads became misaligned even slightly, One track would bleed through into another, leaving you with, at best, a faint background of a different song. Less damning, but still reflecting poorly on the 8-track, is that while cartridges could withstand considerable abuse, the album art were just stickers that cracked, faded, and peeled with frustrating alacrity. The fatal blow to the 8-track was simple. Cost. Cassette tapes were just plain cheaper to manufacture and therefore to buy. If the 8-track had been a skosh more reliable, and had stayed around long enough to work out some of the kinks, it might have stood a chance. But since they were under-delivering, all it took was a strong competitor to knock them out of the market. Bonus fact, the first karaoke machine was an 8-track player. In 1971, Daisuke Inoue built a wooden box that combined a microphone, amplifier, coin collector, and an 8-track player which he called the Eight Juke, and sadly for his descendants, never patented. Bonus bonus fact, the word karaoke means empty orchestra. Listeners of a certain age will remember TV commercials for movies you could own and watch in the comfort of your own home that ended with two different prices, one for VHS and one for Betamax, back when the phrase, sorry, no COD, was beginning to crop up. For the young people out there, COD meant cash-on-delivery, a system under which you order stuff and pay for it at the post office when you picked it up. Companies stopped doing that because people would order things and never collect and pay for them. In the early 1980s, two companies fought a pitched battle for home video dominance. Sony with its Betamax format, and JVC with VHS. Spoiler alert, VHS won. The Sony Betamax video cassette recorder was the first on the market in the U.S. by nearly two years. Released in 1975, it weighed a monstrous 36 pounds and cost the equivalent of $1,300. Oh no, wait, that's the original price. That would be about $6,000 today. Slightly more than my last car. Individual tapes, which could be used to record shows off the TV, cost about $15 each, or $70 now. Recording television shows was a revolutionary concept at the time. Prior to the Betamax, you had to watch a show when it was broadcast, or you didn't see it at all. The entertainment industry felt quite threatened. Universal Studios and Walt Disney Productions filed a lawsuit in 1976 to halt the sale of the Betamax, claiming that film and TV producers would lose millions of dollars from unauthorized duplication and distribution of their copyrighted material. This case made it all the way to the Supreme Court in 1979, where five justices allowed home recording. This was the case that Mr. Rogers testified in, on behalf of children who may be in school when his show was aired. Both the Sony and JVC VCRs solved the same problem. How to store information compactly on a tape. I'll do my best to explain how they work in this non-visual medium. The machine pulls the tape forward to a spinning silver drum. The drum has two electromagnets, called heads, arranged on opposite sides of the drum that read magnetic information from the tape. The rotating head allowed for a more compact recorder. Previous attempts at VCRs had magnetic heads that didn't move, only the tape moved. Because there was a limit to how fast the tape could go, you needed a lot of tape about a 7-inch reel's worth to record one hour, and that meant a movie would need two 7-inch reels inside a cassette. No one wanted cassettes that were more than a foot across, so the rotating head made home VCRs possible. The machines were quite similar in function, and Betamax quickly developed a fan base owing to better picture quality and better construction with the machines. Betamax was arguably the superior format, with higher resolution, 250 lines of resolution versus 240, superior sound quality, and a more stable image. So why did they lose? First, the VHS machine was a good 5 pounds lighter. That's a huge difference for a mass-manufactured product. It impacts everything from material costs to assembly time to shipping cost. That meant that JVC's machine could be cheaper than Sony's. Second, the earliest Betamax tapes played for only one hour, whereas VHS tapes played for two, enough time for most movies. RCA had also planned on getting into the home video format in the mid-70s, with a product to be called Selectivision MagTape, but they canceled it after hearing rumors about Betamax. Also, they wanted a minimum tape length of four hours, supposedly because it was the length of an average American football game, But to achieve this with the technology at the time, the picture quality would have been too poor. Bonus fact, the average American football game contains less than 11 minutes of gameplay and over 100 commercials. Literally more ads than play. Betamax peaked in sales in 1984, and it was all downhill from there. The ultimate killer was the rental market, While Betamax focused its corporate energy into ads on the freedom of watch-whatever-whenever, which they referred to as time-shifting, JVC created relationships with the nascent video rental market. As this market grew, VHS dominated its titles. For a while, you could find both formats in stores, but retailers began giving more shelf space to the slightly more dominant brand, which then dominated even more. Not to date myself, but this reminds me of when I worked at Blockbuster in my first year of college, just as DVDs were beginning to erode VHS's ubiquity. All those halcyon days of having to put on pants and shoes and leave the house if you wanted to watch a movie, getting 15 minutes into said movie, realizing it's crap, then being uncertain of what to do with the rest of your evening. Betamax limped along a lot longer than I had been prepared to expect when I started my research. Though I personally hadn't seen one since my trade school's journalism lab in 1994, production of Betamax recorders continued until 2002. The last tapes rolled off the line in March 2016, the same year the last VCR was manufactured. Betamax may have lost market dominance, but you've got to give it to them for staying power. Much of this section was sourced from Bill Hammock, the Engineer Guy, He has a great YouTube channel, particularly the video on the evolution of the aluminum soda can. I know that sounds super boring, but it's actually fascinating the way he puts it together. Look for a link in the show notes or on the website, and if I forget to put it in, give me a holler on our social media. There was a third horse in the home video race that almost everyone knows and almost everyone forgets about. Laserdisc. Magnavox trotted out its contribution to in-home entertainment in 1978 called DiscoVision. Not Disc-O-Vision, Disco, like as if no one had turned on a radio in the last couple of years. DiscoVision essentially just encoded analog data onto a disc, which was read with a laser. This new technology had drastically better picture and audio quality than both VHS and Betamax. It was also capable of storing multiple audio tracks, allowing for things like director's commentary to be added. The discs themselves were easier and, in theory, cheaper to manufacture. DiscoVision players cost about $700, nearly $2,300 today, but they still sold out quickly in the first test market of Atlanta, Georgia. The first movie to be released on DiscoVision was Jaws. The name Laserdisc would come from Pioneer when they offered a player for the discs a few years later. Pioneer managed to get the price of theirs down to about $500 or $1,500 today. Getting celebrities like Ray Charles and Mr. Wizard to pitch their product, Laserdisc was on the upswing. As with Beta, cost put the kibosh on Laserdisc. The Laserdisc player was technologically complex and quite bulky making it comparatively expensive to manufacture and ship. Another big issue was storage. The LaserDisc stored the video and audio in analog form, rather than digitally like we have now on DVDs. That lack of compression, combined with a large frame rate, resulted in initial discs only being able to store 30 minutes of video per side. Even later models only got as high as one hour per side. That meant that, like a record, you had to get up regularly to turn it over or swap it out for the next one, after which it took 20 to 30 seconds for the half-pound disc to spin back up to full speed before it could start playing again. While technically the LaserDisc could have been drastically cheaper to make versus cassettes, the sheer volume of videotapes being sold brought their price to manufacture down to about a dollar apiece by the end of the 1980s while one Laserdisc cost $5 to make at the same time. A new release movie would cost consumers $35 to $40, to $70 to $80 today, whereas the same movie on VHS was about half that. Yet another significant advantage of VHS was the ability to record shows. It was technically possible to put in a recording feature in a Laserdisc player, but no manufacturer ever chose to offer such a thing, and the discs themselves would have been prohibitively expensive. VHS were also more durable. The slightest scratch would be death to a laser disc, while a VHS tape could be dropped on the rec room floor a number of times without suffering any injury. Adding to this, poor manufacturing quality of early discs led to a phenomenon called disc rot. Oxidation of the reflective layer of the disc resulting in blobs or constellations of discoloration. This can happen to our modern DVDs and CDs, too, so handle them properly and store them upright, not lying flat. And please put them back in their box. Looking at you, ex-husband. Laserdiscs did find staying power in some areas, though. It was the superior format in situations where a particular program would be watched multiple times, such as in schools, which is the only place I've ever been in the same room as one. And Laserdisc is the direct progenitor of the disc media we use today. So you put respect on its name, as the kids used to say. While you're at it, put respect on the names of Charles, Michael, Seth... Nathan, Council of Geeks, and Adam Baum, our Patreon patrons. They help me cover the costs of doing the podcast, like server hosting and my replacement microphone, which allows me to keep bringing stupefying science, hilarious history, and fabulous facts to you every week. Two of the patrons even get their Your Brain on Facts fix at least one day early. And I've just ordered Your Brain on Facts stickers, which will be available as soon as I can get to the printers to pick them up. Even a dollar a month is helpful. That's less than 25 cents an episode. Cheaper than a trip over Richmond's ironically named Nickel Bridge. If you'd rather offer financial support once rather than in an ongoing way, that would still be much appreciated. And you'll find a PayPal button on the front page of yourbrainonfacts.com. You can set up your Patreon support today at patreon.com yourbrainonfacts though the very best way to help the show is to share it with people who also like to feed their heads. Tip them off on our Facebook or Instagram, both of which are yourbrainonfacts, or Twitter, at brainonfactspod. You can probably share this episode with your friends and followers right from your podcast app. Try swiping up on the screen to reveal sharing options. Someone should have told the folks at Sony to get used to failed formats, because their company seemed to have more than their share. In the mid-1980s, Sony introduced the Digital Audio Tape, or DAT, as a digital successor to regular cassette tapes for consumers, combining spinning-head technology from videotape machines with digital encoding. For a time, they were the standard audio format for things like bands submitting their songs to record labels or radio stations for consideration. DATs were controversial, with the Recording Industry Association of America lobbying to prevent their machines from being sold in the U.S. on the grounds that it would facilitate high-resolution album copying. Their argument was basically moot, since the DAT never really caught on with consumers, thanks partly to expensive players. Sony officially killed the format in 2005, with the DAT having been overtaken by recordable CDs without really ever living up to the success of cassettes. 1993 saw the launch of two soon-to-fail products, Minidisc and a track audio compression. Minidisc seemed to solve the obvious issues inherent in both cassettes and CDs. Unlike cassettes, the quality was crystal clear, it wouldn't warp in the heat or be damaged by the player, and the quality didn't degrade when it was recorded over. It was less likely to be damaged than a CD, and it didn't skip when the player was agitated. That was quite appealing for those of us who picked our jacket based on it having big enough pockets for our Discman. Though they could have been successful, Sony sadly added stern digital copy protection, and that, combined with high media prices and the steep cost of buying the player-slash-recorder, meant that it never took off. Sony developed a track audio compression as a proprietary file type for the mini-disc and a solid-state Walkman that would come later. It took until 2004 for them to offer the Network Walkman, which supported MP3s, a format that had rocketed in popularity. Proprietary loses to open standard again, but that didn't teach them. In 1998, Sony developed the Memory Stick, which could only be used with their digital cameras and music players, as an attempt at an added revenue stream for the company. If you wanted to buy a Sony camera, you had to buy more Sony media to put in it. Though some devices still use it, Sony had to concede to the much more popular SD card and begin supporting those. In 2005, Sony took some of its mini-disc thinking into the design of the UMD, or Universal Media Disc, for movies and games on the PlayStation Portable. The size of the media had a direct effect on the design of the PlayStation Portable, making it bulkier than it otherwise might have been. UMDs never saw widespread support from movie studios, and production of UMD movies was significantly cut back only a year later. The successor console, the PSP Go, ditched the UMD for digital-only media. Speaking of movies... While the echoes of the great Beta vs. VHS war could still be heard, a new home video format war was about to kick off. Blu-ray vs. HD-DVD. Like Betamax, Toshiba's HD-DVD had a viewing experience at least as good as its competitor, and was the first to step into the ring. And the first to leave. Once again, giants of the industry were involved. Sony came armed with Blu-ray, and Toshiba had HD-DVD, with the PS3 and Xbox 360 ready to serve as Trojan horses, and emerging internet streaming looming in the distance like the White Walkers from Game of Thrones. Sony promised that Blu-ray had both high capacity and even interactivity like we'd never seen before, while Toshiba claimed that HD-DVD made up for its lesser capacity in other ways, like being cheaper and easier to manufacture in plants that were already making DVDs. As for content, major studios' support weighed heavily in Blu-ray's favor, whereas only Universal stood in HD DVD's corner. That alone would have been enough to deliver Sony a decisive victory. Once Warner Brothers dropped support of HD DVD on the eve of the 2008 Consumer Electronics Show, The war was over. Toshiba conceded a mere month later. Sony had successfully pushed Blu-ray into millions of homes with its PlayStation 3, even though the PS3 trailed the Xbox 360 and the Wii in sales during the early days of that console war. Console wars are a rich enough topic that I didn't include any video game platforms on this list, but don't be surprised if you hear about them later. But victory wasn't all milk and honey for Sony. While Blu-ray prevailed, it never quite turned into the cash cow that its backers had predicted. DVD still reigns supreme as the primary physical home movie format, and that's being squeezed out of relevance by the rise of video-on-demand and streaming. It could be worse, though, as Toshiba is suffering the indignity of selling Blu-ray players of its own and facing the same declining PC and TV sales that have hit and crippled Sony. There was another format introduced in the mid-aughts that didn't do well enough to compete, but deserves to be in this gallery of failures. FlexPlay, or EZD. Like renting movies, but hate returning them? Good news, everyone! Like having a limited time to watch those movies and being left with a bunch of inert, unplayable discs afterwards? Maybe not such good news, then. Like the failed DivX before it, Flexplay discs would turn black and become unreadable after 48 hours, though at least Flexplay had the sense to work in standard players rather than requiring its own machine, like Divix, which also had to be hooked up to a phone line to communicate with a main server. Divix was created by Circuit City, just one of the many decisions that precipitated their demise. Neither DivX nor FlexPlay discs had any special features, like trailers and commentary tracks. It was just the movie. The technology was originally intended as an alternative for short-term rentals of new release movies. Except they weren't new release movies. For fear of FlexPlay taking away from sales of DVDs, the only movies released on it were at least a few months old, by which time most people who wanted to see a particular movie Already had. The 48 hour countdown timer wasn't based on the first time you pressed play, but rather when the package was opened. FlexPlay discs were shipped in airtight, vacuum sealed packaging. A clear dye inside the disc, contained within the bonding resin, would react with oxygen once the package was opened. The dye would turn black over the course of 48 hours, rendering the disc unplayable. If unopened, the shelf life of the sealed package was supposed to be about a year. The DVD plastic also had a red dye in it, which would thwart the blue lasers in DVD players on the horizon at the time, which would still be able to read through the black ink. The manufacturer claimed the discs were recyclable, but environmental groups condemned intentionally making so much of a disposable version of a durable product and you had to take it back to the store for recycling. Kind of defeats the purpose. Consumers responded to the concept with yawns. The brand limped along for a few years, being bought and sold by different companies like Disney, How Stuff Works, and Staples, which clearanced them out at 99 cents each less than a year later. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I'll leave you with a format war you may not realize is even going on iPhone versus Android, which Time described as a war between two fundamentally different visions for the future of computing, described in simplistic terms as closed versus open. Apple's model is based on the company having complete control over its hardware and software, while Google has generally invited developers and consumers to add to their Android products. One way that the companies have secured the status of a good old fashioned format war is by enthusiastically suing each other over patents. In 2011, for example, both Apple and Google spent more on patent litigation and intellectual property protection than they did on research and development. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And don't forget that Patreon patrons get to vote on at least one topic each month.